His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Heavenly Father, as we uh, meditate on your word for this next little while, would you grant us concentration to hear what you have to say, and as we hear it, enable us to respond, uh, living in the way that you would have us live, so that we might be truly blessed. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why? Uh, there's a point in every uh, child's life when they will start asking that question repeatedly. Uh, why can't I eat chocolate for breakfast? Why are you losing your hair? Why can't I see my eyes? Yeah. Why do sheep sleep standing up? Now, they're all very important questions, aren't they? At least for a child. Because why questions are important. Why questions help us to understand the world that we live in. Why are things the way that they are? And of course, we never grow out of asking the why questions of life. And I'm pretty sure that the events of uh, uh, recent events in the world have caused you to ask that question why many times? I mean, why Paris? Why come with guns and shoot down innocent people as they're eating their dinner? I mean, why the refugee crisis in Europe, people drowning on dangerous sea voyages as Europe closes its borders in fear? Why MH370? Why MH17? Or why the recent Russian plane that was shot down in the Sinai region? Why endemic corruption in our world that we cannot stamp out? Why divorce? Why sexual abuse? Why are they all so common? The why questions are the big questions of life. And it is a very important why question that drives our passage today. It is this. Why does our world continue to unite in its rejection of Jesus? Why does our world continue to unite in its rejection of Jesus? I mean, why is ISIS so intent on wiping out Christianity? Why does the Chinese and North Korean governments find Christians such a threat? I mean, why are Christmas and Easter about everything except for Jesus? Why is the only thing that society will not tolerate is, well, a Christian? The question's there in verse 1 of our passage today, isn't it? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why is our world united in its rejection of Jesus? Well, it was in fact this psalm, Psalm 2, that the disciples Peter and John turned to in the New Testament reading, in the midst of the hostility and rejection that they had been facing. We just read the story. They'd been preaching the gospel in the temple, and as a result, they were arrested. They were commanded not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They were threatened if they did. And in the face of that hostility against Jesus, where did the disciples turn? Well, they turned right here to Psalm 2. This psalm written by David, the king of Israel, in about 1000 BC. A psalm originally about David's rule. 
But as the disciples well knew, because Jesus himself had taught them in Luke 24, that this psalm, and indeed all the psalms, all the Old Testament, is about God's ultimate king, his ultimate Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so they read this psalm, and then they prayed for boldness to keep speaking about Jesus in this hostile world that hates him. So my aim this morning is uh, quite simple, that in the face of the world's hostility against Jesus, that we, like the early disciples, may turn here to Psalm 2 and find boldness to be his witnesses in this hostile world. Well, let's turn to the psalm then. And uh, point one, if you're on the outline, global rebellion. Uh, David looks around at, uh, I guess, the ancient equivalent of the United Nations. And he asks the question there in verse one, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Uh, David probably has in mind here the, the, the kingdoms of his day, Phoenicia, Philistia, Amon, Amalek, all the kingdoms that David conquered when he came to power and brought them under his rule. And so he asked, why? Why unite in global rebellion? It's very surprising, actually, isn't it? I mean, it's surprising to see our world agree on anything. I'm very surprised that the climate change talks finally managed to agree on something after how many years has it been? 15 years? Europe still cannot agree on its refugee policy, and that's just a quarter of the world. The nations cannot usually agree on anything. And yet here, all the peoples of the world and their leaders unite together in a global rebellion. And what's even more surprising is who they are against. The end of verse 2 there, they're against the Lord and against his anointed Uh, The anointed uh, is the English word for Messiah. Messiah, Hebrew, Christ, Greek, anointed one, English. It was God's promised king who would rule over God's kingdom forever. And here in the psalm, of course, it's referring to David, but ultimately it will be Jesus Christ, God, David's greatest son. And as we reach verse 3, we find out the reason for their rebellion against God and his king as they voice it out in a cry for freedom. Verse 3, they say, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's a cry for self-rule, autonomy, for freedom. They consider God's rule slavery. They consider the reins of the king chains. They want freedom. They want to be free to live life their own way without God getting in the way. And friends, doesn't this explain exactly the world that we live in? This is our world, isn't it? United together in rebellion against Jesus, its kings and its people together. And what is the battle cry? Freedom, freedom, casting off God's rule that we can live life our own way without him. So rather than welcoming Jesus and his loving rule, well, we regard his rebuke of our sexual indulgence as, well, chains. His rebuke of our materialism, 
fetters. And we people think of the, the creator of the universe, God, as well, a killjoy. All he wants to do is just, you know, sap the joy out of life. And so the cry is for freedom. Freedom in sexual expression. Freedom to abort my baby if I so wish. Freedom to pursue materialism. No boundaries. No restraints. No God. Just me living life my way without God in the way. And God wants us to see here what utter foolishness. It's like a fish wanting to be free from the water. A human being wanting to be free from oxygen. That's not freedom, is it? It's just foolishness. But of course, this rebellion is nothing new at all. And in Acts chapter 4, in our New Testament reading, we saw this, this, this part of the psalm fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was God's ultimate king descended from David. And he was, at the cross, the victim of a global rebellion as the world united together to kill him. Have a look on the screen, verse uh, Acts chapter 4. He's just, they've just quoted from Psalm 2. These verses 1 to 3, and then they say this, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I mean, what happened as Jesus died? His own disciples betrayed him. The rest of the disciples deserted him. The Jewish leaders arrested him. Herod and Pilate condemned him. The Roman soldiers crucified him. And the people of Israel watched on mocking him as he went to his death. On that awful day as Jesus hung there on the cross, there was the ultimate global rebellion as we put Jesus on the cross with a sign above his head, the king of the Jews. What utter foolishness. And yet we see that rebellion continuing day after day after day, despite all the world's disagreements, all the wars that rage. They're agreed on this one thing. Jesus and anyone who calls on his name has to go whether it's in the East, where many nations just try to destroy Christianity, China, North Korea, the Middle East, whether it's the West, where uh, the West is systematically just tearing down its Christian roots, denying everything that ever, it ever stood for as a Christian nation, a Christian nations. See, our world is agreed. Jesus has to go. We need to be free from the bondage that he's been inflicting on us all these millennium. And so if we're Christian, if you're a Christian, don't be surprised as you go to the office tomorrow and you are mocked for being a Christian. I mean, don't, don't be surprised if you're discriminated against by the authorities because you're a Christian. Don't be surprised if you follow Jesus and you're rejected by your family. And definitely do not be dismayed when you turn on the news and you hear of a world persecuting Christians. 
this is the world that we live in, isn't it? We live in a world united in global rebellion. Why? They want to throw off God's rightful rule in a battle cry for freedom that we can live life however we want in our sin. It's been like that from the very beginning, isn't it? Since Adam and Eve there in the garden first cast off God's rule that they could live for themselves as God's. Well, this global rebellion has been seeking recruits ever since. And we must be, be aware, of course, because we, we ourselves can be so easily tempted to take on this kind of thinking. I mean, I don't know if you thought about it uh, this morning. Wouldn't, it be, wouldn't life be better if you weren't a Christian? I mean, wouldn't it be better if you could have just slept in this morning instead of coming to church? Uh, wouldn't it be better if you could just go and buy an iPad instead of giving to the Ministry Workers Fund? Wouldn't it be so much better if you could just focus on your career instead of having to go to a Bible study on Friday night? I mean, wouldn't life be better if we just broke free from God's rule and just did whatever we wanted with our life? But David begins with this psalm with the word, Why? because he wants us to be so clear. Rebellion against God and his anointed king. It might seem like freedom, but it can never succeed. It is doomed to fail. It is utterly foolish. And so we come to point two then, the foolishness of rebellion. We have here a shift in verses 4 to 6, we shift from the nations to the Lord, from earth to heaven, from standing to sitting. How does the Lord respond to these, well, big threats? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I mean, he doesn't even bother to stand. He just sits on his throne and he laughs. You want to rebel against me, you fool! <laughs> it's like an army of ants trying to take over the world. They might seem powerful to each other. We might seem powerful to each other, but we have our bombs, we have our planes, we have our philosophies, we have our science. We seem so powerful to each other. But what can an army of ants, even a billion ants, do against one human being? I'm sure you tried this as a kid. Just one cup of water or one footstep, they're decimated. The battle is over. I mean, how foolish to think you can overthrow the creator of the universe. He made the galaxies by speaking a word. He's all-present, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. I mean, do we really think we can dethrone God? Do we really think we can succeed in setting up ourselves as the, the rulers of this universe? What utter foolishness. And in the face of our foolish attempts to dethrone God, he just laughs. You fool, what are you doing? But he doesn't stop there, does he? Verse 5. 
then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Actually, the, the world's rebellion against God is no laughing matter in the end, is it? It is utter foolishness, but God is rightfully angry, terrifyingly angry. And he has acted. Verse 6, we have God's words, God's response, if you like, to the rebellious words of the nations in verse 3. What does God say? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, the reference here is probably to the coronation of King David. Uh, Zion was the fortress in Jerusalem. David conquered it when he first became king. In Zion, God's king was safe, untouchable. Uh, 2 Samuel 7 declared, David's descendants would always sit on the throne. You probably remember this promise from God to David. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I mean, God has promised his king will never be dislodged. How foolish to think that you can overthrow him. God has said he will stand forever. He will sit on the throne forever. Uh, And again, this promise uh, would see its fulfillment in David's greatest son, Jesus Christ. For, For though the nations did succeed, of course, in putting Jesus to death, three days later, he was raised, exalted to heaven, to rule. Jesus is God's king, the one who fulfills this promise, the one who will sit on the throne in heaven for eternity and never be dislodged. Peter declares as much in Acts chapter 2, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He sits on the throne. He's resurrected as king. Try as you may, you cannot defeat Jesus. And so God looks at the rebellion of their world. He laughs. He terrifies them in his anger for their stubborn refusal to bend the knee to Jesus. And then in verses 7 to 9, God's king speaks. And interestingly enough, God's king has nothing to say but, well, God's own words. This king is the king that will perfectly submit to the true king, to God himself. And so he takes God's own words on his lips. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Uh, David is again alluding to that same set of promises from 2 Samuel 7. For God had promised not only that he would sit on the throne of the kingdom forever, but that David's son, God's anointed king, the Messiah, would be called God's son. So God promised David, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him. I will be his father. 
and he shall be to me a son. And that promise, of course, again, would be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Can anyone tell me where, do you, where are those words going to be quoted in the New Testament? Psalm 2 verse 7. This is my son. Where is it quoted? Six times, seven times in the New Testament, that one verse is quoted. His baptism, his transfiguration, and in 2 Peter as well. Who was the Son of God? It was Jesus Christ. And so at his baptism, God marked out Jesus as this king from, from Psalm 2, the king who would rule forever as the voice came from heaven, this is my son. And you see, when the Bible calls Jesus the Son of God, it doesn't always, in fact, it doesn't usually mean that Jesus is divine. The Son of God is God the Son, no doubt. But the term Son of God derives from here, 2 Samuel 7, from Psalm 2, verse 7, it refers to God's king who will rule for eternity. And who better to rule for eternity than God the Son? And so Psalm 2 helps us to understand what Jesus' kingdom will be like. Jesus is the ultimate king. What is his kingdom going to be like? Well, God makes a promise. Come to Psalm 2 again, verse 8 and 9. Here is the promise. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here's a promise in the end from God the Father to God the Son. What's the promise? The nations are yours. Your inheritance. If you like, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And that is exactly what Jesus said to his disciples when he had been raised from the dead. Matthew 28. The risen Lord stood with his disciples. What did he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The Father has promised the Son. The nations are yours. You will rule over the entire world. And here is the basis for mission, of course. God has made a promise. From the Father to the Son, the nations must be Jesus. Ask of me, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And so we go out, bringing in the nations under the rightful rule of Jesus. No, the nations are given a choice. Submit to Jesus or be destroyed. Did you see what he does with his possession, verse 9? It's a surprising thing, isn't it? If you've got a wonderful possession, you won't usually do this to it. Verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, I wonder what picture you have of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's nearly Christmas time, so the baby in the manger, perhaps. 
Jesus, meek and mild, a lamb in one arm, little baby in the other arm. That's how it's in all the children's Bibles I'm reading. (laughs) Jesus certainly was, isn't it? The most meek, mild, compassionate, loving man that ever walked the face of this earth. But we mustn't be deceived. The baby didn't stay in the manger. He humbled himself to death, yes, but he was exalted to rule. He reigns on high now, on the throne of heaven. And one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord and everyone who has rebelled against his rule they will be smashed like pottery and thrown away to eternal judgment. We just finished our series in Revelation, but Revelation 19 shows us how it all ends. Here is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so here, of course, we have a warning and an encouragement. The warning, if you get on the wrong side of Jesus, well, watch out. He will rule. He will smash his enemies in the end. There is a final judgment and Jesus will win on that day. Beware, if you have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus, do it as swiftly as possible. But there's the encouragement as well for the people of God, those who have submitted to him. Because Even though we look at our world united in this global rebellion against Jesus, against us, his people, well, we know the end. They won't succeed. It doesn't matter if it's ISIS or whichever government. It doesn't matter if it's Richard Dawkins or his other other buddies. It's all going to be in vain. It's all going to be a failure. Jesus continues to sit on the throne yesterday, today, forever, and nothing that any of those people do is going to change that fact. One day all evil will be destroyed. All his enemies will will be placed under his feet. Jesus is king. He will not be dislodged. And so the psalm leaves us with a choice. We're at point three the wise response. It's the same choice that was given to the original readers of the psalm as well. How will we respond to God's king? Will we persist in foolish rebellion or choose the wise path? We've heard three voices already, but in this fourth stanza, the psalmist himself steps in to give the wise response. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, 
for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's the choice. Very straightforward, isn't it? Persist in rebellion and you'll face one day the wrath of the Son or turn back, submit to his loving rule and you will be blessed. Well, I just want to draw out uh, three final implications of this response for ourselves, for others, and for, for God. Firstly, ourselves. What does it look like to submit to God and his Messiah? Well, it's there in verse 11, isn't it? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. They're, they're really interesting words to put together, aren't they? Service and fear, rejoicing and trembling. They, they, they almost seem like opposites to each other, don't they? I mean, how can you celebrate and be terrified at the same time? Ever tried it? Very difficult. Now, I don't think it means being afraid of God per se, as if God is some evil dictator tyrant. God is the loving king, and his rule is blessing. But I think it does mean that we must treat God with the respect that he deserves. Yes, he is our loving heavenly father. Yes, he works all things for the good of those who love him. But he is also the powerful ruler of this world, the creator of all things. And he demands submission. He demands obedience. He demands worship. And in particular note, he demands that we wholeheartedly submit to his son. Verse 12, kiss the son. So we must ask the question, is this us? Is Jesus the Lord of our life? Don't just mean Lord of Sunday. Is he the Lord of all your life? Family, friends, work, eating, sleeping. Is he the Lord of your breathing too? Is he Lord of all your life? Uh, do you remember those, uh, a few years ago, maybe I'm not as, uh, maybe you're all younger than me, I don't know. Remember those little Tamagotchis? You had to, you know, had a little, little pet dog in your pocket, and you had to bring it out and feed it and so it wouldn't die. Remember those things? I... I wonder if sometimes we treat God a little bit like one of those little <laughs> Tamagotchis. You know, we'll pull him out of our pocket for a little while and go to Bible study and go to church for a little while and then we'll put him back in our pocket <laughs> and we'll just live life the rest of the week, well, for ourselves. Forget about him. I'm in charge. But if all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus well, then he demands nothing less than 100% control, total submission in every part of life. And that rule, well, it's not chains. It's not fetters. It's not bonds. The rule of Jesus, the loving rule of Jesus, as we will see in a moment, that is the place of ultimate blessing. Don't buy the lie. 
that life will be better off without him. Let Jesus be Lord. Put him first. And blessing will come. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. But there are, of course, uh, implications of these verses for others as well. It's very interesting, this psalm, I think, as you reflect on it. I mean, David begins with that question, why? Why do the nations unite in global rebellion? But he doesn't give us the answer, does he? Did you notice that? You never get the answer to the why. You only get the answer how. How God will respond to this arrogant opposition against him. You see that response there again in verse 12, don't you? Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Uh, David knew that if people continue to rebel against God, it will lead to their destruction. And so David pleads with his readers, stop the foolishness, give up the rebellion, stop the fight, it's all vain, you will be destroyed. I mean, do we share this perspective on life as the psalmist? Do we truly believe that those who oppose Jesus and his rule are going to face his judgment? Because that is the sad reality, isn't it, for our friends, our family, our colleagues, our classmates, all the nations, if they do not submit to Jesus as the Lord of their life. We need to warn our friends, don't we? We need to warn our family. The guest night is not the end of evangelism. If you truly believe people who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ are going to face his judgment, join the mission. In loving compassion, join the psalmist, urging people to give up the foolishness. Submit to Jesus as Lord. And if that is a terrifying reality for you, as it is for me, it was hard enough to invite my in-laws to come to the guest night. Uh, four of them came, I'm very thankful. Two of them made it to the, hear the talk and the other two left before the talk, but at least they were there. If you feel afraid as the opposition rises against Christianity, well, will you look to this psalm for boldness? This is where the, the apostles looked, isn't it? As they were arrested, as they were told not to speak anymore, as they were threatened. Where did they look? They came here to Psalm 2 and then they saw this glorious Jesus who is Lord of the universe, definitely Lord of those wimpy little high priests in the temple. And so what did they pray, Acts chapter 4? I think I've got it on the screen. Verse 29, what did they pray? What would you have prayed? Stop them threatening us. Please protect us. Please keep us safe. What did they pray? Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak with all boldness. Verse 31, when they prayed, the place which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. As we read this psalm, Psalm 2, we are meant to be encouraged, emboldened, to keep proclaiming Jesus in the face of opposition. It's meant to remind us, Jesus reigns supreme, and no matter what people may do, whether they're going to mock you, persecute you, reject you, kick you out of the family, arrest you, attack you, kill you, whatever they're going to do, you cannot ultimately lose. You're on the winning side. Jesus is still on the throne, and he will stay there forever. Do not fear this hostile world, even if they kill you. Well, you will be raised with Jesus, isn't it? Just as he was raised to reign forever. Do not fear this hostile world. Jesus is Lord. Instead, pray for boldness that God would help you to speak. Like the apostles, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. If you're afraid, if you're nervous, read Psalm 2 again. And then go and speak. Speak of Jesus. Well, one last implication for God. We see in this psalm, God is ruler. God is judge. But I wonder if you missed his mercy and compassion as well. How does God act towards this wicked and rebellious world? He sent his own precious son to die at the hands of sinful men that he may offer them blessing and forgiveness. Like the psalmist, he calls out to rebel sinners, stop the foolishness, turn to the son, you'll be blessed. See that at the end of verse 12, actually I put it up on the screen. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And if you are, you are one of the newcomers who's uh, hiding away at the beginning of the service, really glad that you're here. Um, we want you to know where true blessing is found. It's definitely not in money. It's in Jesus. In Jesus we can be forgiven for our rebellion, offered eternal life, we can have the perfect relationship with God forever. Death and suffering and evil will be one day put to rest. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord, even though you've been sitting in this congregation for many years, turn to him. Submit to him as Lord. 100% of your life. Because we do believe that the Bible is true, don't we? If we rebel, if we persist in rebelling, living for ourselves or any other God, well, one day we will stand before Jesus' judgment throne and we will perish. Give up the rebellion. Stop the foolishness. Submit to him as Lord and you will be blessed. You'll be saved. You'll rejoice under his loving rule. That is the wise life. 
That is the blessed life. Do not be deceived to look for it anywhere else. The blessed life is to give up the rebellion and to submit to the loving rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Father, we thank you for reminding us this morning that Jesus reigns supreme, that he is the Son of God who rules this universe, seated on the throne, who will never be budged. And so, Father, we pray that in the midst of this hostile world where, which rages against Jesus and his rule, that you would help us to continue to trust in him and that knowing he is in charge, please embolden us to speak the good news of Jesus to our friends and our family, that they too may be spared his wrath and experience the blessing of living under his rightful rule. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.